John chapter three before we step in and read the text. Jesus is uh, on the scene. He is um, just started his ministry. He has just performed the miracle at the wedding of Cana where he has turned a bunch of barrels of water into wine for the festivities. And so his popularity is rising. His teachings are so profound. They're, you know, they're confounding, but they're also enlightening. And so it gains the attention of the religious leaders in Israel, those who would follow Judaism. And uh, one particular person it gained the attention of was a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He is what they call the teacher of Israel. Uh, This man was so astute and he was so knowledgeable and so respected. He was what they called a teacher of the teachers. And so if you had a bunch of teachers of Judaism, they would gather around him and he would teach them how to teach. I mean, he was a really magnificent guy. And what we find here is that he approaches Jesus in the evening and he comes and they begin to have this conversation together. And, you know, a lot of people give Nicodemus a a bad rap because they say, well, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he was afraid of what people would say about him, Um, which may be true. We don't know the heart uh, of this man. But it also may be true that he just wanted to come where he could have a uninterrupted conversation with this man, right? Because during the day he was so inundated. And so we got to be careful before we assign meaning to people's hearts. But nonetheless, he comes and he shows up to have this conversation with Jesus. And this is what the text says. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's going to be the focus of uh, our time today. How can they be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water or born naturally and born of the spirit supernaturally. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus asked, how can this be? And Jesus answered, You are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in his Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. 
But whoever believes by the truth comes into the light so it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This morning, I want to I talk to you primarily on the topic of sin and salvation. And I want to talk to you as it relates to sin, uh, not in a specific sense where I'm going to you know, list a litany of different things that you should and should not do. I want to talk to you about sin in a universal sense and what it has done to, to humanity and creation and all these things. And so what you're going to see throughout this morning is you're going to see a theme of spiritual blindness. And we'll, we'll tackle all that uh, here in a moment. A couple of years ago, I was on a social media platform, and uh, I saw a woman, I don't even know who she was, I don't even know if I know her, but I, but I saw this post, and um, this is what she tweeted, this is what she wrote. She said, survived two car accidents and a lightning strike all in one week, hashtag blessed, <laughs> to which somebody else replied, and they said, Blessed, it sounds like God's trying to kill you, <laughs> right? And so it's this idea, I think it's so fascinating that we can have a topic or an idea or a concept and we can think that we understand it, but then realize that other people can see it from different perspectives. And sometimes we realize that the way that we've been seeing it the whole time is wrong, right? And generally speaking, the, the church in the West, okay, I think over the last 50 or 60 years, for the most part, I think that the church has done a pretty good job of helping people understand the nature of sin and what salvation is. I think we've done a pretty good job. My concern is that over the last 15 to 20 years is that there seems to be this, this uprising of a new type of understanding of sin and salvation. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of, um, and again, please understand my heart, I'm not, I'm not being critical for uh, uh, the purpose of being critical. I'm trying to be constructive in, in my critical analysis. But I think what we're seeing is we're seeing this uprising of these mammoth churches that, that are just, you know, they, they have tens of thousands of people attending. But when you get down to the nitty gritty and they, they talk about the doctrines of sin and salvation, it's very, very different than what the Bible teaches. There, there's some elements of truth there. It's kind of sprinkled throughout, but a true understanding of what it means to be spiritually blinded, to, to be lost, I think it's vacant there sometimes. And so we've got to be careful that we understand that just because um, a, a person says something in a convincing way, it doesn't always mean it's true, okay? We've got to rely on Scripture to guide us into all truth. And so today, all I want to do is this. I don't want to, you know, set our church up and say, well, we know right and nobody else. That's not what I'm saying whatsoever. I'm saying a lot of churches, uh, the vast majority of churches have got it right. But we have gone in, we have kind of trickled into a new era of time and exposure to new teachings. And so today, for those of us who are Christian believers, uh, this is a reminder, this is a fortifying reminder of where we have been and, and where we are going. And for those who, who may be here and, and you are not a Christian believer, perhaps an opportunity, okay? So I want to talk to you about this idea of spiritual blindness for our time that we have together. 
You know, I'm the type of person that if somebody sets up an appointment with me um, and they, they tell me they want to talk about their marriage, typically what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit with them and I'm going to say, man, how's work going? Right? I'm not going to ask them right off the bat about their marriage. And then they're going to tell me about work. And then I'm going to say, how are the kids doing? And then they're going to tell me, and I'm going to say, you know, if you're a hunter, you know, how's hunting going this season, you know, or whatever the case is. And my move, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get them to understand, like, I care about you, not just the issue, right? And, and that's what I'm trying to do because I do care. That's not like a manipulation tactic or anything. I really do care. But sometimes we as humans, we need these walls just kind of, you know, broken down section by section. The thing I love about Jesus is that he doesn't do that, right? He is so like far beyond uh, where we are. Nicodemus comes to him and he begins having this conversation. Teacher, you're, you're doing all this stuff and all these signs. Like, what is this? What's this about? And Jesus doesn't say, hey man, how, how's your wife? You know, how are the rulers doing? Uh, have you found it? Has God given you any new revelation of the Torah? And no, he goes straight for the jugular, right? Nicodemus says, what is, what, like, like clearly you're from God, but, but what is this? And Jesus goes straight in, this is what he says. The first line out of Jesus' mouth, he says, very truly I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And what Jesus is doing, I believe, what Jesus is doing is instead of going into a futuristic conversation, what Jesus is doing is he's taking Nicodemus back to the beginning where spiritual blindness initiated. Back in the garden, most of you have probably heard these events, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have, you know, uninterrupted relationship with the Father. They are living in a perfected state. Um, their sin as we know, the world as we know, was completely vastly different than what it is now. God sets a tree in the midst of the garden. He says, just do whatever you want. This is your dominion. This is your domain. Just don't touch the tree. This one tree, just don't touch it. And sure enough, what do they do? They go and they touch it. And in that moment, there is a rebellion that takes place. There is what R.C. Sproul would call a cosmic rebellion. It's where the creator has gifted the creation with something and the creation has balled it up and thrown it back in his face they have rebelled against the one who made them, right? This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. And it basically means this. It means that when Adam sinned against God, that his sin didn't just affect him. It didn't just make him blind, but it affected all humanity for all time. Listen, all the way up to Nicodemus. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, Nicodemus, you are a teacher of all teachers. Like if anybody should know, you should be the guy. But no one can see the kingdom of heaven until they're born again. Because why? You're, well, you're spiritually blind. That's why Paul would say it. Paul said, listen, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought death. So physical and spiritual death spread to everyone. Why? Because everyone sinned. So this is the picture that we get in Eden. When Adam takes a bite of the forbidden fruit, it contains a virus that is sin and it destroys him in, internally. It destroys his soul, his very spirit, his 
um, body, all of creation. We'll talk a little bit about this in a moment, but it, it destroys everything. But with it comes a virus, a blindness, a spiritual blindness. There's now a cloak over his eyes and not just over his eyes, but over the eyes of every person that will ever live, right? There's this, this spiritual blindness that covers us. St. Augustine, this was kind of his take on, on Adam and Eve and us as it relates to this idea of sin. Augustine said that Adam and Eve, when God set them in the garden, he gave them such dominion that they willingly had the power whether they would choose to sin or they would choose not to sin. And perhaps we don't know how long they were in the garden before they sinned. It could have been days, it could have been years. We, we really don't know. But, but they were there for at least some amount of time where they willingly operated under the idea, I am going to resist sin, I am not going to sin. They had the power whether they would choose to sin or not. This is Augustine's take. He said, but once they sinned, the rest of us no longer had the power to choose. The rest of us, we didn't have a choice whether we could choose to sin or choose to reject sin. We were now endued with what we call a sinful nature. In other words, we're born into sin. Like it's not if we're going to sin, it's when we're going to sin. Our natural inclination is towards rebellion against the creator right? And the troubling thing is, is that this occurs from birth, right? Super uncomfortable moment for us all, okay? But let me say this. Listen, I have a new grandson, and he is adorable. I love him with all my heart. I was holding him last night, and I just so gently, I said, buddy, I call myself Paco. Paco loves you so much, (laughs) right? I love you so much but baby, you're a sinner. You need a savior, right? <laughs> He's like seven weeks old. It's cool, okay? And people are like, people are like, what do you mean? There's, no, listen, we are born into sin. We aren't born as saints and then sin becomes sinners. That's, no, the idea is this. <laughs> I heard a, a pastor one time. He said, he said, you need to understand that children uh, when, because they are born into sin, they are vipers and diapers, right? <laughs> it's this idea, like, and again, it's an extreme thing, but he's trying to get us to understand that we are all born into the state. Listen to me, a brokenness of, of such deep corruption in the deepest parts of who we are. And we are oftentimes blinded to that fact but we're born into it, right? A few years ago, uh, I have a bunch of kids, but one of my kids was, um, I was, it was in the morning and I was laying on the bed and she was laying on my chest. I didn't have a shirt on. And on my abdomen, I have like this, this mole or whatever it is, growth, I don't know. Um, but anyway, I had this thing and it's, it's sensitive to the touch, and so as we're laying there, she rolls over. She couldn't have been eight months old, maybe. And she goes and she starts to poke and to scratch. And I'm like, oh, that hurt, you know? And so I start her, I said, no, baby, don't, don't do that, okay? That hurts, daddy, just don't do that. And she said, oh, okay. A few minutes go by, we're watching TV. And then all of a sudden, I see this little <laughs> finger. What's she doing? She's coming to touch what I told her not to touch. Why? Because listen to me, I know this is hard for us, but we no longer have the power to choose whether we will sin. Like when in our fallen state, 
whether we're, go- we're going to sin, our inclinations are to sin, we are going to sin because we are that broken, right? Now, let me say this generally. I, I, we do believe that there is a grace that covers children in their innocence. We, we believe all that. I don't have time to get into all that, but we, we definitely believe that. But it doesn't remove the fact that they are born into a sinful state. We all are, okay? Even up to Nicodemus, even up to the very children that were born this morning, okay? So it's not the idea that, um, it's not the idea that we're sinners and so we're gonna sin, it's th- we're going to sin because we're sinners, right? Like it's, it's what we're going to do, okay? That's the brokenness, that's the depravity. And so as a result of Adam's sin, it affected us, and you've heard our pastor teach on this a number of different times very, very quickly. It, it affected us in, in three different primary ways, right? So number one, it, um, it, it breached our relationship with the Father, okay? So Adam and Eve were close, and then when they, they fell, it breached their relationship. And so the Father kind of cast them out of his domain right? So there was distance. So there was at one time a closeness with God. Now there's a chasm between people and God. Okay. So it breached our relationship with God, but it also broke our being. Okay. So on three different levels, it broke our spirit. I've I've talked about this a a little bit. The, The light that was in Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, that light was extinguished. Their spirit died in that day. Okay. And for those of us, when we were born, we're born with a spirit, but the spirit is dead. The spirit is not alive. There's not a light. You know, you hear people talking, you know, philosophy and all this stuff, the light that's inside of you, they don't have light. Okay. Unless they're found in Christ. But, but, but we're born with that. Why? Because the fall, the gravity of sin broke the image of God within us. And so there's a distortion from what God intended to what we are now. Okay. So there, there's a brokenness in our spirit, but there's also a brokenness in our soul. Okay, and our mind, will, and emotions. This is why you will oftentimes, in your thinking, you will take a step back a few days later and you'll make the statement, What was I thinking? Right? Or this is why you look at somebody else and you say, What are they thinking? They never think right, right? This is why we are prone to things like hypertension. This is why we get anxious about things. This is why we have the internal struggles with like jealousy and envy and lust. It's because that which is within us, our mind, our will, and our emotions, they are are broken. They're they're compromised, okay? And then finally, we're broken in our body, okay? Now, on a macro level, if you get you a good study Bible, you can see the decline of human life, the lifespan of, of, of humans, right? With Adam and even some of those, they were living into 900 years of time, right? I'm bumping up against a thousand years. They're, they're living this long. And then what you begin to see after the fall is you begin to see this gradual decline. Well, now they're not living that long, but they're, they're still living like six, 700 years, which is pretty amazing, okay? But then you see a plateau and then it kind of, and then after the flood, it drops all the way down to like 120 years, just over hundred years. And then you continue to see the digression. Now we're, you know, somewhere between, you know, 170 years at this point um, where, where it's just, so on a macro level, you see the effects of sin in the human body, but even on a personal level, right, you see it, don't you? Right? 
because the things that used to not be flabby (laughs) now have a little jiggle to them, right? And the places that used to grow hair, okay, no longer do, okay? Do you know that God's intention was for you to never lose your hair? Isn't that amazing? I'm crying out for a glorified body and glorified hair, okay? Um, But my point is this, we're broken at the spirit level, we're broken at the soul level, and we're broken in our physical, natural body. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that all creation is broken. This is why we have, you know, wildfires and volcanoes and viruses that, that run amok. It's because of the brokenness of sin. That was never intended, but sin compromised everything. It broke everything to the nth degree. Okay, so it does these things, but today what I want to focus on more than anything is I want to focus on the fact that the fall of Adam affected us in this way, that now there is a blindness over our spiritual eyes, okay? Now, to be clear, I am, for the next few minutes, I'm talking about people who have not come to faith in Christ yet, okay? I'm talking about you before you came to faith in Christ, Okay, um, you remember the events that happened at the Holocaust, right? Well, I say that a few years ago, I read an article that said like something like 65% of millennials had never been educated in the events of the Holocaust. That's a problem, friends. Okay, we need to fix that. Another story for another day. But I'm just saying that's, that's, a, that's an issue. But, but for the most part, here's a, here's a general sweep, Okay you got this young guy that rises to power, okay? He's just fought in the First World War. He's got, you know, he's a wounded veteran. He suffered a a mustard gas attack that compromised his vision. But for some reason, this guy, Adolf Hitler, gains incredible influence in the political sphere. He rises to this authoritative state where he is basically the dictator of a nation that draws a line in the sand and they decide that they want to go to war with everybody. They're like, we, we don't even care. We want, you know, at some point it almost felt like he called it um, territory expansion, but it was really world domination was what was in his eye. And so they began to, to advance their troops all around the world, right? They began to advance and to take, try to take territories and all these kind of things. But part of his vision was not just uh, territorial domination. Part of the vision was that he also wanted to fabricate a pure racial line among the German people. And what that meant to him was a lot of different things, but, but primarily what that meant to him was an eradication of the Jewish people. Okay? And so we, we've heard the statistics, but something like 6 million Jews were just slaughtered. Their, their lives were taken from, they were extinguished from elders to, to itty-bitty ones. Their lives were just taken at the hands of Nazis. And primarily, the, the, the method they would use to eradicate the Jewish population were these camps they called concentration camps. There were like over 40,000 of these things. I mean, just, just all over the place. And 
they would capture Jews, specifically European Jews, and they would send them to these concentration camps. And in these camps, they would basically either run genetic tests on them or they would just put them in work camps where they just moved stuff from one place to another until they collapsed under, you know, exhaustion. They starved them to death. They would put them in gas chambers and, and they would just murder. They, they Firing squads just on and on and on. They made a practice. They made an event. They made a game out of taking the life of the Jewish people in that day. I mean, a vile, like in a word, evil. Just there was nothing good that came from this moment in history. And so what we found happened was as the war began to advance and, and kind of come more to a close, the Allied forces were gaining traction. And so they were getting more of the frontline soldiers that were just sent to fight, you know, on the front lines, they were capturing prisoners of war. The, these, the Allied forces were capturing Nazis. And as they began to capture more and more of these frontline soldiers, what they began to realize was something like super revealing. It should be super revealing to us. I want to show you a photo. Not of me. Uh, I want to show you a photo of some of these men. Okay? Now, this is a group of men who have been on the front lines. They were, they were fighting tooth and nail, okay? And once they were captured, they took these men and they put them in a room and they projected onto a wall the events that were happening at the concentration camps. They were showing them the gas chambers. They were showing them the firing squads. They were showing them the, the, the intense starvation that children were going through. And all of a sudden, I mean, look at this photo. What do you see here? You see shock. You see sobriety. You see grown men shielding their eyes from what's on the screen ahead of them. And what they begin to find as they would interview these men is that although these men were allegiant to Nazi Germany, they, they, they had their allegiance to them. They wanted the world domination. They wanted all that. They were all about that. What they found is that a majority of the men on the front lines had no idea what was going on at the deepest levels of the Nazi regime. They had no idea. In other words, they were part of a system that was so evil and so vile but they had no idea the depravity which they were a part of. Man, can I tell you, that's the human condition right there. That is the human condition. Most of us, when we talk about sin universally, right, we view sin, we interpret sin as, oh, I made a mistake, right? I just, man, I shouldn't have done that. You know, that's generally speaking, that's how we view sin. That is not God's view of what sin is. Sin is far more nefarious and rippling than what we can possibly imagine. And listen, we are in this system. Jesus said this. He said, you are, you are kind of under the domain of the ruler of this world, which is Satan. And before your eyes are open to truth, you are a part of the system, and whether you're at this level or you're at this level, you're guilty of it all. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's not how we typically see it. We typically see it as something I probably shouldn't done, but on a good day, I'm going to justify it. We see it as things that it is not, but we've got to recalibrate our thinking when it comes to these ideas of sin and salvation. And we've got to understand, as Sproul said, this is a cosmic rebellion against the creator, against an almighty God. The peasant looks and shakes their fists in his face. This is sin that has the power to damn a soul for all of eternity. Like it's, it's nefarious, it's wicked, it's vile, and it's dragging and it's clawing the souls of men and women. And I'm gonna tell you what, people in Western culture don't have the slightest clue. This would be so foreign to the way that most Americans think when they think about things of God. It would be foreign. I think that part of it, at least in part, is that in Western culture, and again, this isn't a, a blanket statement, but I think we have reduced the doctrine of sin and the, the necessity of a savior. I think we've reduced it and we preached a gospel that is more about healing your hurt than it is saving from sin. And we preached a gospel that is more about removing my shame than it is a surrendering of lordship to Jesus Christ, right? And so this is the problem that happens with that, right? And listen to me, don't misunderstand me. He wants to do all that and more, but that's not the most important thing he cares about. Those are, those are way, 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 way secondary, right? The idea that we have presented this gospel, so this is how it unfolds. It unfolds by a person coming to Christ because they just want the guilt removed. They want the shame removed. And so they come to Christ, they sense a little bit of reprieve, and once the shame is gone, is there really a need for a savior anymore? And the answer, no. I mean, yes, but, but in their mind, no. Why? Because the symptom has been dealt with. The symptom has been cured, not understanding there's something far deeper than just a symptom that's causing the symptom, right? But, but listen to me, that's, that's where most in, in, in our culture have an understanding. So uh, I, cause it the, I call it the raise your hand and repeat after me culture, right? Which is where, you know, and I've, done, I've been in ministry for almost 25 years. I, I, I do those sermons, raise your hand, repeat after me if you want to come to faith in Christ. And I believe in that. God will use anything, right? I believe that God will use anything. But I'm saying it's been reduced to raise your hand and repeat after me if you just want to feel better. Yeah. And that is not the gospel. Yeah. That is not the good news that Christ came to believe. And so, so we have to kind of recalibrate our thinkings in this. And so part of our spiritual blindness is an increasing amount of ignorance as it relates to what sin is and what salvation is. And I don't mean ignorance in a derogatory way. I mean it in the most appropriate way. There's like an unknowing. There's a, there's a, there's a constant growing like unknowing of what is really going on and what system I'm really a part of. There's this constant state of, of unknowing. But beyond that, for the non-believer, there's also an increasing state of confusion. Okay, so let me explain this. So, unconsciously, whether a person, when a person's spiritually blind, we still unconsciously know something's not right. 
right? There, there's some, we don't know what it is. We don't understand sin, but we understand like something's not right. And so what we do is we try to go figure out how we can fix it or repair this thing that, that isn't right, right? So we experience, you know, evil in the world or we experience loss or, or guilt or whatever the case is. And we're like, man, that's not right. I, I don't know why it's not right, but for some reason it's not right. And so we go out and we try to fix it and we latch on and we try all these different religions. And then we, you know, we try to just kind of tip the scales towards, you know, doing enough good things. And hopefully that'll balance out my, you know, whatever is, is in me or, you know, maybe happen to some hallucinogens or whatever, and maybe I'll gain some, you know, crazy insight or whatever the case is, is people just, just, just clawing, trying to find out, I know that there's something not right, but I don't know what's not right. And I don't know how to fix it. Wow. Right. I had a dream a couple of weeks ago and, uh, you know, there, there are some dreams that are divine. We believe that God still speaks through dreams and visions. Some are divine, some are demonic, and some dreams are just dumb. Okay, um, I think this was a dumb dream. Okay, I think it has no spiritual implications or whatever, but I'm going to give it one. Okay, um, I, was, I was in this dream and it was a nightmare. Now, I can't remember what the nightmare was, but I remember consciously thinking in my dream, I was like, this is a nightmare and I've got to get the heck out of this dream. Like in the dream, I knew I was in a dream. And so I started speaking to myself and I was like, you got to wake yourself up. And so I started like doing this in my dream. It was worse than that, but I don't want to embarrass myself. Okay. And like that didn't work. I couldn't wake myself up. So I'm like, you know, I'm trying to like, you know, wake myself up and I'm clawing. I'm just going. And, and here's the thing. I knew something wasn't right. I knew I was in something that wasn't right and I had to get out of it. I just didn't know how to get out of it. And listen to me, friends. That's the state of humanity today. Everybody, unless you're just, okay, you know, something ain't right. But for those whose eyes are spiritually blinded, it's just like, well, what, what can I, what'll make me feel better? What can I do that will kind of right the wrong that I've done or whatever this? And, and they begin to go after all these ways out. But what they do not understand is that there is only one way out. Okay. But that's the spiritual blindness. Okay. So there's this increased ignorance, this increased confusion, but then this is definitely what we're seeing in culture um, globally. Also, for those who are spiritually blind, there's an increased apathy towards sin. There is a growing delusion in our world. The spirit of Antichrist, I believe this with all of my heart, a measure of the spirit of Antichrist has been released in the world. I believe that. I don't believe the full force has, but I believe a measure has been released in the earth that we've never seen before, right? I was watching, uh, I saw a video the other day and it was a man and he was on the street, he was interviewing different people and he walked up to these, you know, a guy and a girl and he walks up and he makes the statement, hey, I believe that love is love. Do you believe love is love? And they're like, oh yeah. And, and if you're not familiar, again, I need you just to hear my heart. I'm not making fun or anything like this. That's not even close remotely what I'm trying to say. But for the LGBT community, that's primarily their language, right? Love is love. You should be able to love who you want, all this kind of thing. And so this guy goes to these, this uh, young man and young woman, and he says, man, listen, I believe love is love. I think that people should be able to love who they want. They should be able to marry who they want. They should be able to have relations with whoever they want. Do you agree? And they were like, absolutely. People should be able to do whatever they want. Love is love. He said, so you're agreeing with me. Love is love. They said, yes. He said, awesome. That's incredible. I need your help. I have this petition here. 
And we are just a few signatures away. What we're trying to do is we're trying to draft a bill that will go into uh, the state so that we can allow for siblings to have marriage in the same way that a heterosexual couple can. And they were like, what? And he said, you just said love is love, right? And they were like, well, well, yeah. And he said, all I'm saying, I just want brothers and sisters to be able to marry each other. I think they should be able to love each other, marry, have relations, whatever the case is. And there was just like this resistance, right? Now, these are people that clearly, I don't believe are walking with the Lord, but there was this resistance. They were like, no, that's, that's okay, there's a line. You know, it was just this weird, like, I'm not going to sign that, right? Okay. But, but here's the thing that it's important, I think it's important for us to understand. Okay. In culture, every time that we concede to one evil, it gives birth to another evil. Okay. Track with me. Okay. In the 60s and 70s, there was this outbreak of what was called the sexual revolution. And at first, the church and the world, they were resistant. They were like, no, that's not, like, you can't just sleep with whoever you want to, these swing parties and all this kind of thing. No, just kind of, you know, uh, hold off. But then at a certain point, it was like, well, we do live in a free country. People can do kind of whatever they want to do. And so when we gave a pass to the sexual revolution, that then birthed the pornography industry, right? And at first, there was great resistance. It was like, no, we shouldn't be a part of this. No, we're not going to do this. And then it was like, well, you know, it's really just art, is really all it is, and we can appreciate, you know, all these kind of things. So we gave a pass to pornography. And then all of a sudden, there was a movement of the homosexual community, right? And at first, there was resistance. Listen to me say this. In, in culture, in Hollywood, in New York City, there was resistance to this culture 20, 30 years ago, right? And you don't believe me? Go watch some sitcoms from the 90s, right? And you'll hear the statement, again, please, with all of my heart, I am not... I'm not making fun. This is not, I'm just giving you truth right now. This is what the sitcoms would do. Something would happen with a person in the, in the show who was a homosexual, and one of the main characters would say something about it, like make a joke about it, make it a punchline, and then they would be like, well, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? And so there was some type of resistance of like, you know, maybe it's okay, but we conceded that, right? And then it was like, well, love is love. And everybody should just be able to kind of do what they do. When we conceded that, it gave birth to another evil, which is the trans movement. And now we've got sons and daughters who are being mutilated. Okay, do you, do you see the trajectory here? It's like we concede, birth, concede, birth. All of a sudden it goes on and on and on. Mark my words and hear me say this. Right now, we look at the video I was talking about with the siblings. And we're like, dude, we will never get to that place. Psh. Friend, come and talk to me 20 years ago about what we're allowing today and tell me we'll never get to that place. Because I'm telling you, once the trans movement is conceded, that will give birth to a new evil, which is polygamy or, you know, inner family relations or whatever. That will then give birth to pedophilia, which will then give birth to bestiality. You say we will never be a nation that embraces bestiality. Check your sources. Check your history. Watch trajectory, notice the trends, and you will see that every time we concede evil, it gives birth to a new evil. This is the apathy of spiritual blindness. It's not just stagnant, it's increasing. There's, there's like a momentum that picks up. It begins to 
develop a life of its own. And this is what scripture says in Rome. This is what happened to the Romans. I wrote a paper a few weeks ago. This, we are Romans. In Romans 1, this self-destructive tendency and this perpetual thing that the Romans went through, this is what we are doing today. And the Bible says that God gave them over to their self-destruction. He said, no, 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 no. And they persisted. And at a certain point, he said, if you want it, here it is. And it's a self-destructive thing that we see growing in society. Why? Because people love darkness more than they love the light. In other words, listen, people love spiritual blindness more than they love the light. And listen to me, church family, those, those of us who are walking with the Lord, man, this puts us in a, in a pretty interesting predicament, doesn't it? Because now all of a sudden, there are certain things that we've got to stand against. And there are certain lines that we've got to draw, draw in the sand. But there's also the command and the call to go and to love not the wickedness that people are perpetuating, but to love the wicked person and to pray for them and to ask God to open their eyes. And I mean, it's just this weirdest, how much do I say and when do I pull back and how far do I go or how far do I stay away? It's this, it's this thing we need. I'm going to tell you the greatest gift that the church needs today, that the church needs today it's not hospitality, it's not leadership, it's not a plethora of other things. We need discernment. We need discernment, not only for the days ahead, but we need discernment for everyday interactions that we have. Why? Because souls are at stake, right? Okay, so we, we, we have this, this thing that's going on. So here's the problem. Here's the problem. Before a person comes to faith in Christ, it's hard for them to really understand anything that I've just communicated. It really is. I mean, think about before you came to faith in Christ. I was, I was grown before I came to Christ. So I remember my thinking, and I never understood the world in that kind of way. I understood it in a, in a totally different paradigm. It's because there was a spiritual blindness that rested on my eyes. And so I interpreted things in that way, just kind of feeling about instead of being able to perceive the light and to know which way to go. I was trying to make my own way, even though I was spiritually blind. So here's the good part about it. Okay, so in the goodness, in the humility, in the grace, and the love of God, he saw that spiritual blindness, and he said, they can't even do anything about it. Like, they did choose it, okay, but, but like, even if they wanted out of it, they can't get out of it. They can't even fulfill the, I've given them a covenant, and they can't even do what I'm asking them to do. And so Christ steps on the scene and he says, well, I'm going to fulfill the covenant that they couldn't. And I'm going to come in and I'm going to take their place. And so this is what Jesus is talking when he's talking to Nicodemus. This is, this is what he's talking about. When he says, Nicodemus, the wind blows, it seems like a very odd place for Jesus to put this phrase. He's talking about blindness and new birth and all of a sudden the wind. It's like, dude, what are you doing, right? But, but this is what Jesus is trying to communicate. He's saying, listen, God directs the winds. You don't know where they come from and you don't know where they go. You don't know what time, and you don't even know what season. But God is directing all of these things. And Jesus says that in the same way, God is the one, the only one, who can remove the spiritual blindness from our eyes. So in his goodness, he looks down on a pitiful, broken humanity. And he says, listen, I want to come, and I want to help them to be able to see. 
And so he does this through the proclamation of his word and, you know, through life events. God will use anything. God will use anything to open the eyes of the blind, right? But listen to me. It's not something that you and I can conjure up. Jesus said this later in John 6. He said, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws them. In other words, this, this idea of illumination, where Jesus says, listen, the Father is going to come at different points in a person's life, and he will touch their soul so that they are illuminated, and their eyes are open to understand the truth of the gospel, the truth that they are a sinner and they need a Savior. And it's in that moment that they can either accept the grace of God and step away from blindness, or they reject the grace of God and continue into blindness. When a person accepts the grace of God, as God illuminates their heart, God always, he is always the initiator, okay? When God illuminates the person's heart and they accept the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, they surrender their lives to him. When they repent and believe, a person goes through this thing called a spiritual rebirth. Jesus said, you'll, you'll be born again. The wind blows, and in the same way, that's the way a person is who, who is born again. So I want you to think, mama's in the house, if you've ever given birth, okay? I want you to really consider how much work your husband put into that delivery, All right, listen, or your other kids, or that kid, what did you do? And here's your opportunity, mamas, you can look at them right now, don't do it at lunch, do it now, look at them and say, nothing! You didn't do a thing. I did all the work, the doctor was a cool coach, but he didn't do anything either. You know, and I gave birth to that. And every mama, right, who has any level of knowledge or pride about themselves, they're not going to give anybody else credit either, right? Because they did it all. This is the spiritual rebirth. It's not the work of a person. It's not something that a person can conjure up. Listen to me say this. It's not even something a person can decide until God illuminates the heart, right? And, and when God does illuminate the heart, in that moment, when they, when they receive that grace, there, there are a million things in a micro moment that happen. They are regenerated and they are born again and they're justified and they're righteous before the living God. They're forgiven of their sins. All of a sudden, they're adopted as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Like all of these things just happen in, in a fraction of a second, right? And, and here's the thing. For some of us, when that moment happened, it wasn't like this euphoric experience. You know, moms say all the time, I heard my wife say after she had given birth, she was like, for the first little while after the baby had come out, there was a euphoric experience that I've never experienced before. And I was like, is that pain? And she was like, no, it was something different. It felt good, you know? And I was like, okay, that's weird. But, but my point is this. When a person is born again, there's not always necessarily this euphoric experience where I was this and today I'm that. I was born again in a bedroom with my brother-in-law on a bed and nobody else. And I'm going to tell you, from the time that I received, got illuminated in my heart, I received Christ as Savior. And the next morning, I didn't feel a whole lot different. But it doesn't negate the work of God. 
I mean, there are a million other people that do have that dramatic experience, right? But there are some times where labor takes a lot longer than others. And so it doesn't even mean that it's this long drawn out or a euphoric experience. Sometimes it's just different for different people. My point is saying this, is that in our world today, we, make, we use the phraseology about us finding God. Even as Christians, and I've done it before, okay, so don't feel bad if you feel good. But we, we use things, I remember when I found God. You never found God. <laughs> you never did. You were blind. How, uh, you know, you couldn't. You couldn't find God, right? There, there was such a vastness. There's no way that you could have found God, right? Listen, the Bible says this in Psalm. This is what the psalmist wrote. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any people who seek God, but all have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul would say it like this. Nobody seeks God. The only way that our spiritual blindness is removed is because God came to us. Listen to me. This is the fundamental difference between Christian, uh, the Christian faith and every other faith. Every other faith, the mentality is, I, I, I have this mountain, God is at the top, I gotta figure out which trail to navigate to get to God. Christianity says, you don't come to God, but God carved his own path to come to you. It's fundamentally different. God does the work. We have to choose, of course. But God has done all the work to come to us. Our religious, our faith is not us working our way to God. It's God humbling himself to come to us, right? It's this whole idea that God did all this. And listen to me, you understand, you understand that not only did God not have to do this, there's no reason, there is no reason that he should have done this. There was no reason. In my estimation, he was right with the flood. I'm being, I mean, he was right. He, yeah, I mean, he was right. But somehow we've lost this mentality where we no longer realize the depth and the brokenness and the depravity from which we've, we've forgotten how deep that miry clay was. We forget the, the, the wraps that went around us, that held us in. And that God Almighty chose, listen to me, no other motive, no other motive other than love. He loved his enemies. Paul said God demonstrated his own love in this, that while we were still sinners. While we were yet enemies against God, he sent his son to die for us. Listen, that's how he showed us his love that he demonstrated. And so for me to be able to come to God with this mentality that I have anything to offer before, you know, before he's illuminated my heart and my mind, that, that I can earn the love of God, that I can work my way to God, Listen to me, it's the height of arrogance to think that I can bring anything to God that will be approving of me. It's the height of arrogance to believe that. This is why Paul, this is what he would say. He would say, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that why? So that nobody can boast. It's a work of God that he does motivated 
by love and compassion on a pitiful peasant like me. So the question is, Corey, you're pretty excited about this, you know. What's, what's the deal? Why do you think it's necessary that we understand this? And this is, this is why. Because I think that not only us understanding the nature of sin and our depth of depravity, the system that we are in, until we understand that, we will not appropriately respond to God. I believe that. I can't, under, I can't appreciate the grace of God that he's given me and bestowed on my life. I cannot appreciate it appropriately until I understand the judgment that I deserve. But once I comprehend and understand the depravity and what I actually deserve, the gift is all the much greater. And so I'm going to live differently. Right? So like, so like, this is what, in my mind, this is what that means. When, when a person really understands, this is what scripture says. Scripture says that you and I were children of wrath. That, that's what we, when we were born into our sinful state, we were born as ch- children of wrath. But scripture says that Christ came and he plucked us from the dominion of wrath. And he now placed us, and we are no longer children of wrath, but we are what? Children of God. Right? And so when we really understand that we are children of God plucked from depravity, we will no longer treat God as casual. But listen to me, you, you want to talk about Western culture, even in Christian Western culture, man, do we treat God as supplemental. Man, do we treat God as casual, indifferently. I'll give him my time if I want, like, like, like all of this, this type of mentality. We, we are vacant to the understanding of the depth of which we've been plucked. And today, for those of us who are Christian believers, this is a reminder for us of the goodness and the graciousness of God that in none of our efforts, he came and he illuminated us and he removed the blindness. And in his goodness, he sent Christ to die for us so that we could be his sons and daughters. And so this is what it means for me. Our worship, when we really understand this, individually, our worship will come to life because there will be a new, a new depth of gratitude and devotion and understanding for the almighty God. Our parenting will be cultivated because we understand that, listen to me, raising a good kid who makes good grades and has a good job isn't good enough. We're dealing with eternality of soul. That these little children we're raising, their destination, their eternal destination is going to be in one of two very real places. And so our parenting will be more cultivated in a spiritual sense. Our giving, our serving, it will all kind of catch fire. It'll be ignited because we understand that every time I serve, there may be times where I'm touching, you know, the life of a child whose eyes have not been opened yet. Or when I'm in the foyer and I, and I, and I encounter somebody, they may be a person who is still spiritually blind. And so when I show up, I'm prayed up and ready to go. When I give, it's not just going to be because i got a duty to give. It's going to be because I understand that, that we're dealing with eternity. We're dealing with a, a new gravity and a new weight of things. And I believe that our hearts will begin to shift from this world to the next. Listen to me say this, friends. The, there is another election coming. Next year, there's another election coming. We need to be involved, prayerful. We need to pray some things, you know, uh, we need, we need to go all in. We need to be well-minded. But you also need to be reminded this is not your home. Right. This is not your world. Yeah. And don't make idols 
out of political figures that will only disappoint. Men were never intended to possess glory. Only God was. And I'm telling you this, in the next cycle, and I believe this is true of, of the, the people of Christian life, the spiritual family, I believe that, that the church, there's gonna be an awakening. Like, like people are gonna look at some pocket churches throughout the nation and they're gonna say, now they understand the difference between God and man. Because we're not gonna put all our eggs in a basket. We're gonna focus and we're gonna shift our eyes to glory. And we're gonna understand, we gotta be involved, we gotta do this, we gotta do that. We get, yes, we gotta do all that. But we're just passing through. Right? Our home is of another realm. And listen to me say this. When we really, when the, when the scales fall off our eyes, as it did for Saul of Tarsus, our lives will be different. Yes. How we respond to God. And listen, you may be a Christian. You may have been a Christian for 30 years, but never really understood the depth of your depravity. Right. I believe you can be saved and not really understand. And all I'm saying is this. All I'm saying is that they're, they're in, a, in a nation like ours, there has to be a move where we understand who we are and we understand who Father is and the gap that is so desperately between us because only then will we re respond appropriately, right? So it affects this life, but I'm gonna tell you it affects the, the life to come. Jesus uses phraseology like eternal life, eternal death, the second death. Listen, there's a very real place called heaven, a very real place called hell. And every person who has ever existed will live out eternity in one of those two pockets, places. Can I tell you, as much as I love John 3, 16, I'm going to say a couple things that are kind of edgy, okay? But I need you, you know, I think you know me. I'm not like a controversial preacher, okay? I think you know that about me. But I'm going to say some things that may feel that way, but it's not, okay? I'm going to tell you, I love John 3, 16, okay? It's one of the most beautiful portions of scripture that we have. For God so loved the world right? His motive is love, that he sent his son, whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The trouble with selecting one scripture and building everything off of that is you, met, you miss the rest of the message. In John, same chapter, John three thirty six, this is what John writes. He says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, and listen to this, for God's wrath remains upon them. So the, the beauty of John 3.16 is we see the love and the graciousness and the goodness of God, and we should always emphasize that clearly, okay? I know I'm not doing a good job of that today, but clearly that should always be the emphasis. But I'm saying, can I really appreciate what God has done for me until I understand how badly I needed it, right? And, and listen to me say this. I think this is so, so fundament, fundamentally important for us to understand. Listen, when God saves us, he doesn't save us from the devil, okay? Does God save us from ourselves? Yes. Does God save us from our sin? Yes. But can I tell you what God ultimately saves us from? Himself. For those who did not accept the Son and believe, God's wrath rested upon them. Why? How could, wait, I thought God was a father. Hold on, whoa, whoa you're, you're, you're giving me mixed signals here. No, 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 listen. God is a father to the fatherless. But let me tell you what. There is a moment coming in human history where the defiant, the willful, the arrogant, the resistant, the perpetual 
people who inhabit this earth, the creatures, shake their fist in the face of Almighty God, and he's supposed to just turn away? No. They have declared themselves as enemies against God. And at a certain point, he will be as merciful as merciful could ever be. But friend, listen to me. There will be a day where justice prevails. And there will be a day where the wrath of God is poured out on his enemies. And that is a sober, listen to me. I don't even like saying that. Because I know how that makes some of us feel. I, I need to be so humble when I say this. Those are not my words. This is the, the living word of God that declares that God will have his day with his enemies for those who perpetually and willfully resist him. That's sobering, but it's a reality. And so this is part of the reason that we pray for the lost. This is part of the reason we are boldly share our faith with those who are not found. Because listen to me say this, out of all that and as real as that is and all these kind of things, again, Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, two N's, at clcolumbia.com. Send me all of your opinions. Um, <laughs> tell me how wrong I am, and I'll just send you an email back filled with scripture. Okay, here we go. Um, listen to me say this, right? That's a, that's a sobering thing. That's a sobering thing. And I'm sorry if I just wrecked, like, your view of who God is, but I think we, we need to grow in our understanding of who God is. And um, so this is the beauty of it, right? He says that is the fate of those who resist the, the work of God, right? But this is the beauty of it. The very first time we see Jesus stand before people and give a sermon, what we would call it, is in Luke chapter 4. And I want you to listen to what, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. This is what he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, and listen to this, and recovery of sight to the blind. You know what he's saying? Nicodemus, Corey, all of you who have ever lived, there's a spiritual blindness that covers you, but the Father in his goodness and love has sent me and I'm fitting to come back and recover the sight to the blind. I'm about to illuminate hearts and let them see clearly the depravity so that they can understand their need of a savior. This is the first sermon that Jesus preaches. Gabriel comes to Mary. How does he introduce the, the child that's gonna be born? He says, you shall give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save the people from their sins, right? Paul talking to Timothy, he says, this is true and trustworthy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus made a self-identifying statement. He said the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Right? So it's not just that we are left to our own. We were. But then God in his goodness sent Christ to rescue, to illuminate, to open our eyes. And listen to me. That's why it's good news. It's not good news if you're not rescued. 
or if you're rescued from nothing. If I were standing here and Pastor Justin came and he picked me up and he said, Corey, I'm going to rescue you, you know, and I fall into his lap. I'm like, dude, I wasn't even falling. There's, there's nothing. If I'm not rescued, I'm not going to say thank you. I'm going to say that was weird, right? <laughs> but when I understand if there's something to be rescued from, there's going to be a full appreciation for what he's done. So we've got to understand that, which God sent his son. And listen to me say this. Once our eyes are open, this is the good news. This is what Paul said to the Romans. He said, once you were slaves to sin, but you have been set free from sin and slaves to righteousness. To all who believed, he gave the right to become the children of God. In Christ, we have become the righteousness of God. Listen, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son. Christ has reconciled you to the Father. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone. The blind is done. A new life has begun. So, that's the reality of what we're dealing with. Now, I thank God the majority of people in this room, this is just a reminder because our, our eyes have been illuminated and we understand. Other people, it may be an opportunity. It may be that God is illuminating your heart like in this moment. And I'm going to be super careful. I'm not going to manipulate anything. I'm not going to get this like altar call or anything like that. Um, I'm just saying this, that if you sense the spirit of God working, don't you think it's worth investigating further, right? And I'll be glad to talk to you about it or anybody in here probably. But I simply want to, I want to make this statement. And let me, let me just say this. Even if you've been coming to a church your entire life, your parents are Christian, your your family's Christian, all that kind of stuff, that, that doesn't necessarily, you're not, you're not like sucked into that, right? You're not like grandfathered into this. Every individual, God illuminates the mind and the heart, and every individual makes a choice. And this is the crazy thing about Nicodemus. We never really know what he did with Jesus. We we hear about Nicodemus two other times at the trial of Christ, but then the last time we hear about Nicodemus, he's with Joseph of Arimathema, and, and he's taken the lifeless body of the Savior, and he buries him in the the tomb, and he puts spices and all this stuff. That's the last time that we hear about Nicodemus. And what we can gather from that is it's clear that, Jesus, that, that Nicodemus respected Jesus, right? It's, it's clear. But respect isn't enough, right? And, and again, I'm, I'm going to be super careful not to, like, manipulate this moment or anything like that. But I do want to say this. I think it's such a weighty thing that when your life is gone and your children and your grandchildren are left behind you, that you don't want them wondering about you the way that we wonder about Nicodemus. You understand what I'm saying? Like you, you, don't, you don't want that. There's an unsettledness, there's an uncertainty there. But the truth is this. Again, Scripture says that it's destined for every person to die once. And after that is the judgment. And the judgment rests on one thing. One thing. When your eyes were illuminated, what did you do with Christ? That's all it's going to be based on. 
And listen to me say this. The, the writer, um, uh, the prophet Isaiah, he said this. He said to all people, he said, the grave is licking its lips. Meaning this, that we have no idea the brevity of our lives. We plan. I'm a planner, huge planner. We have no idea. We have no idea the brevity of our lives. And what we do with Christ in the moment of illumination means everything for all of eternity. And so this morning, I just want to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to stand. I know our ministry teams are coming in place really quickly. The Bible says anyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone. Past, present, future, none of that matters. When God illuminates the heart and the mind, anybody who, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They will be a new creation. And this morning, I want to I pray for all of you, whether, whether you're spiritually blinded still or whether, you know, wherever you're at in the process or you're a Christian, I want to pray for you today and ask, ask God to do that empowering work. When we say that, amen, you, you are welcome. These prayer ministry team up here, um, they are here to pray with you in, in any level that you can think of, from salvation to my toe hurts, okay? They, they will pray for you on any level, and we want to encourage you to do that. But I want us to take a moment and pray together as we close. Father, uh, this morning, I come to you, Lord. Um, I come to you with a very real understanding of the depravity of mankind. And I'm sure even in all that we've talked about, we still don't really understand. And I want to pray, Lord, that you will put inside the heart of every Christian believer the greatness of your salvation, the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and what it truly means for us for all of eternity. And I pray for those who maybe here today and this is an opportunity and maybe the Lord is illuminating their heart and their mind I want to pray that the Lord Jesus will come in super close and that you will speak to those individuals in a way that nobody else on the planet could speak and I pray Lord for a great harvest of souls in the days to come in the years to come we pray that Christ will be glorified in our salvation and we bless you we love you we celebrate you In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen.